All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Um, Apparently, it's going to be very dangerous driving later today. So again, you are the godliest ones at 9 a.m. You have wisdom and foresight into the future, and uh, we respect your your wisdom. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church, and uh, most weeks I get the joy to open up God's Word and to teach, and we're in a seven-week series called Explore... God. All right, good. You've been here for seven weeks. Love it. Uh, This is the last week, by the way, uh, and this is the last question that we're going to answer. Explore God seeks to go after the seven biggest, most difficult questions that non-Christians have for the Bible and for Christianity in general. But also, these are seven questions that we find most Christians are not equipped to respond to. Um, Even questions like today's question um, feel um, hard for us because our brains get all discombobulated. And and what we want to do is serve you and help you, help you think biblically, help you engage in conversations, help you understand the best ideas, ideally, help you understand God's word on this. That's the goal. Uh, The question we're going to answer today, this last one, is can... I know God personally. Can I know God personally? So here's what I want to do. I want to open up this morning, and I want to ask you two questions to get our brains in the right space. The first question, I want you to answer with your finger. Now, some of you will never, ever, ever do anything somebody up front asks you to do because that's just kind of your thing. You'll never be told by anybody to do anything, and I get that. So I honor you, but there are some of you who don't mind playing along simply for the sake of illustration, and I will not make you look like a fool or look stupid or anything of the sorts. Okay, so if you're willing, just take a finger, and all I'm going to ask you to do is point in a direction, okay? Um, There really aren't a lot of wrong options here. I mean, there's one, really, that I can think of, but um, you're going to be fine no matter what happens. All right, ready? Question number one, use your finger and point, where where is God? (laughs) Okay? You got, your, you got your answer. I appreciate, by the way, the humility in this room. Uh, some of you are like, uh, no, not happening ever, okay? So, all right. <laughs> now, if you're a pantheist, uh, which there are a significant number of pantheists in the world, if you're a pantheist, it doesn't matter where you point because all is God and God is all and the chair is God and I'm God. It's not that I'm uniquely God, but all matter is God and whatever you can see, touch, taste, etc. God or the energy of God weaves in it and through it. And so if you are a pantheist, it didn't matter where you pointed because you're right. Um, that's where God is. Uh, if you're a Muslim or uh, a Jew, okay, you're going to have one standard response. And the standard response, by the way, is going to be directly up. God is transcendent. God is out there. God is big and awesome and glorious, and he's over there, and I am over here. Here's what's interesting about the Christian response is that I can think of at least four correct answers that you could have pointed to. Now, is it fair to say and accurate that if you pointed up, that is where God is? And the answer is Absolutely. Jesus ascended into heaven. Um, Here's something that will blow your mind. Um, If a Christian in America points up and a Christian on the other side of the world points up, they're pointing in opposite directions. (laughs) I know, your world has been shaken. You have to leave at this point. Um, 
The, there's another correct answer, which is, um, I saw this up here. Before I even asked the question, they were pointing at their spouse. And, uh, and that's true. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, where is God at this moment? Well, God, the scriptures tell us that he indwells followers of Christ, people who have trusted in Jesus, personally by his spirit. So if you pointed at the person next to you and they are a Christian, then yeah, God's presence is actually there. If you are a Christian, now I, I know none of you wanted to go like this because you, you felt like you'd be saying that you are God. Uh, No, the question is, where is God, not who is God? We know who is God, but the question is, where is God? And you could have pointed here, and you would have been accurate. There's a fourth one that my wife brought up, and I thought this was fair. The scriptures say that God is with you or near you, and and in theory, you could have said, like, right next to me, like taking your pointer finger and been like, he's right here, in a sense. Um, Now, one of the things that Christians got to get straight is the word omnipresence, because if I were to say to you, is God omnipresent, your gut reaction is going to be, absolutely, God's omnipresent. Well, I, I think Christianity has a little twist on it. It's not that God is everywhere. Um, God is actually in heaven and in people and takes up unique residence, but God is aware of everything that happens always, everywhere, all the time. Uh, and so if I were to say most, most directly, where is God? Well, God's in heaven, and the Spirit of God is in me, and the Spirit of God is in you. Now I want to ask you a second question. If God were to describe you, who are a Christian, if God were to describe you, what words would he use? What would he say? Just a couple words. I want you to get them in your brain. If God himself were to describe you, if you went to God and said, God, in two or three words, describe me, what would he say about you specifically? God in your brain? I want to give you two words that I actually believe um, uh, are two of the most important foundational aspects of who you actually are to God. That, in fact, these two simple words should actually frame everything else that you thought God would say about you, okay? Here are the two words. Beloved son or beloved daughter. And so in uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, uh, God the Father speaks over Jesus, and here's what you're getting. I want you to hear this. This is not just an affirmation of Jesus Christ as God's son, right? This is also a revelation into the heart of God for his children. And so here, here's what God says to his son Jesus. And by the way, those of us who've trusted in Jesus Christ, you are, if you will, brothers of Jesus as co-heirs with Christ, sons, daughters of God. Don't get lost in the son language, ladies. That is a first century way and it's inclusive of all of you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So let's go back to the question. Can I know God personally? I, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything more personal than God himself taking up personal residence inside of a person, bringing them into his family, and then making this declaration as permanent over your life, despite your behavior, you are beloved. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. And, and, and the Holy Spirit isn't just declaring these things now. The Holy Spirit is in you, and it is working with and partnering with your soul and your emotions and your mind, and it is doing things in you powerfully intimate. Like this is, this is an amazingly close personal experience. It's not an accident, by the way, that the two primary metaphors in the New Testament for God's relationship with his people is going to be, number one, a bride, and then number two, a beloved son. Now, now let's just say it this way. You want to see a good man rage. You mess with his bride 
and his children, and you will see an otherwise self-controlled man lose it. Why? Because it's personal. And so the idea here, I think, that most people are thinking is, can I have a personal relationship with God? The, the answer is actually really easy. The answer is yes. Uh, but I think what most people don't realize is how personal we are to God. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible, and the Bible is creating this vision for us of what relationship with God is supposed to be like. Adam walks with God in the cool of the day. How many of you would love to go on a walk with God and talk about anything on your mind? Like, that's unbelievable. And sin has wrecked this relationship massively. But this is the heart cry to be put back into right relationship with God from the very beginning. And everything that happens from Genesis 3 on is about God's restoration and bringing back mankind so that we can be in right relationship with God. And this is the beautiful picture of the story. And so, of course, this cry is deep in the heart of every single person. We want to know God and be known by God. And once this thing is in order, everything else just starts to make sense. Now, open up your Bibles with me, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 14 to 16 this morning. Romans chapter 8. There's a question that the Roman church is directly dealing with here. I want to just put this out for you. Uh, The question they're dealing with, along with honestly every other early church in the first century, is this. Who are the real Christians? Who are the ones that really do have the spirit of God? And the reason they're probably poking at this question is because they lived in a a time and a place of unusual persecution. So here's what would happen, right? You have a friend, um, they profess faith in Christ, the persecution comes, they reject Jesus, they go back to their old ways, and they've seen this happen over and over and over again. And by the way, you've seen this too. For us, it's not persecution, it's the lure and love of the world, right? Right? You have somebody that professes faith in Christ and the lure and the love of the world draws them back in and, 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 and you're asking the same question, were they ever even saved in the first place? Like, how can they run so far away from God? And, and so all of Romans 8, for the most part, is about this. It's about what life is like for somebody who has the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is like this line of demarcation. If you have the Holy Spirit, you are a son of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not a son of God. Okay? So like this is the line. So he's like, let's just talk about life in the Spirit a little bit. And so we're jumping in kind of mid-discussion. But in the discussion of life in the Spirit, Paul's going to give us something that blatantly and perfectly, and I think beautifully, answers this question, can I know God personally? So we go to ver- verse 14. He starts off and he says, for all, all meaning true Christians. Christians who have believed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus— and as a result of their true trusting in Christ, have been given the Holy Spirit of God. That's, that is the, the assumption here, okay? So all. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now here's what I want to do. I want to double click and dig down on this concept of led or leadership here, okay? This is, we're going to spend a few minutes because good spiritual leaders have a very clear and intentional vision for your future. If you have a mentor in your life, if you have a leader, a spiritual leader in your life, if your mom and dad are being the spiritual leader that they're supposed to be in your life, they are going to have a life-giving, good vision for you. And their leadership in your life is going to be moving you toward that direction. Now, 
Do you have something called a will? The answer is yes. And have you ever quenched the good vision that your parents have had for you uh, in your life? Raise your hand if the answer is yes. Awesome. Some of you, yes. The rest of you, no. Again, some of you are like, I will not do one single thing, Pastor, you asked me to do. I love you. I'm glad you're here. Um, Secretly, I might be more in that camp when I listen to sermons than not, which is terrible. Working on it. Repenting. All right. But I want you to get this, that the Holy Spirit is a great leader, and he has a vision for you, and it's crystal clear, and it's, it's not just generic, although there is a generic side to this. The Spirit wants to form the character of Christ in you, yes, but the Spirit also knows that God has made you uniquely and wonderfully and beautifully and has called you to something, and the Spirit is passionate about that unique design and calling on your life. The Spirit has a vision for your life. And so it's very natural that when we read this, we do focus on the son part of it, and we'll get there, right? But, but I want you to see something, that the Spirit of God is a really good leader. He has a very clear vision for your life, and he has a will for your life, and he's taking this, and he's trying to lead you in that direction. And so what the scriptures are communicating to us, and this passage is going to unfold for us, is that there are two spirits competing for your future, Two spirits who are uh, really working at odds to control your destiny and and, and your life. And here's the first one. We call it the spirit of the age. That's what the Apostle Paul would call this. Uh, It's the spirit of the age. It's sinful culture that is motivated and run and led by Satan and demonic forces. Now, not all aspects of culture are sinful, right? But there are many that you can see that they want to suck you into their vortex and then spit you out less of a human than you were before. That's one, sp- that's one spirit who, who is seeking to lead you and control your future and the outcomes of your life. Uh, the other spirit is the Holy Spirit of God who loves you and wants to form the character of Christ in you and lead you to be who God has made you to be, to build the kingdom of God and become like him in the process. So if I'm you, I'm probably asking at this moment in my life, which of these two spirits is leading me now? Which of these two spirits is primarily in control of my life? And, and if, you're, if you're not a Christian, it's going to be easy to discern the answer. But here's what I have learned about being a follower of Christ, let alone a pastor, is that there are times when I let the spirit of the age take the wheel. There are times when the spirit of, age, of the age seems to have a greater impact on my life. How do I know which spirit is leading me? Here's, here's the first one. What are they leading me away from? If, there, if there's something in control of your mind and your heart, I want you to hear me, it's leading you away from God or the people of God or the word of God or intimacy with God or worship of God. I just want to tell you this. Probably not the spirit of God leading you away from the good things that God wants for us. Probably not. Um, the, the Holy Spirit of God, actually, one verse earlier, you can read it in 8.13. The Holy Spirit of God actually is going to lead you away from one really specific thing, and that is sin in you. Um, here's one of the ways that you can actually notice this. The Holy Spirit of God um, is leading you to observe and find and kill, murder the sin inside of you. One of the ways that you, you can know that you're being controlled or you are being primarily influenced by the Holy Spirit is because you are regularly looking for sin inside of you to kill, right? Because here's what you should know, right? As soon as you kill one thing, there's another one just creeping right behind it, right? Because that's how jacked up and totally sinful we really are. And so here's what we're doing. We're regularly looking, regularly looking for sin to kill 
in our lives, that's what we're doing. Now, the second question is, what, what are they leading me towards? I want, you, I want you to hear me. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you as a beloved son toward a deeper relationship with God as your loving, healthy, kind dad. So, so the Holy Spirit, when he works in your heart, when he convicts sin, right, he's not leading you to more shame. He's not leading you to more condemnation. He's leading you in a very specific direction back to God, your father, your dad, who is humble and good and kind and merciful and gracious. That's what he's doing. So I want to go deeper into this leadership thing for a moment. So um, in life and businesses, churches, leaders do something. They develop values, attitudes, beliefs, um, uh, and all these things come together and they culminate in a, in a cultural behavior, if you will. And, and the hope is that a good leader is going to create values, attitudes, and beliefs that create, an, that create life-giving actions and behavior, right? Like that's the dream, that a good leader is going to do that. So um, I want you to imagine with me for a moment. You have an organization, you have a business. And I want you to imagine with me that the CEO of the business is Satan himself, okay? What kind of behaviors would you expect from an organization where the prince of evil (laughs) is the CEO? Remember, as a CEO, he's creating the culture, the attitudes, the beliefs, and he's rewarding certain behaviors and not rewarding other behaviors. Um, Do you think there would be envy? Do you think there would be competition? Do you think there would be striving? Do you think that there would be arguments that are really, really mean? Do you think there'd be cutting words? I'll give you like a, a big picture word here that I think is really, really valuable. There's one word that if Satan were the CEO of an organization that he would create all throughout the organization, and the word is fear. Now, I'm not making that up. We're going to see that in the text in about one minute here. I'm not just pulling that out of nowhere. Now, I want you to imagine you have a person. Now, this person is not the CEO of an organization. They're the CEO of themselves, okay? And they have values, attitudes, and beliefs, and behaviors that result from these. And I want you to imagine that this human being is filled with the spirit of Satan, right? Some of you are like, I've got someone in mind. (laughs) What kind of actions or behaviors would you expect to see out of that person? Probably not great ones, right? The problem is if I ask you to say that back to me, you're going to start talking about the person in your brain, and they might be in this room, so we're just going to stop there, right? The spirit of the age leads people into fear. This is, this is its desire and its dream. Look at verse 15. Here's what he said. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Fear. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Most people's God concept is one of fear and not one of personal intimacy with God. Uh, you just need to understand this. When I sit down with Christians... Most Christians in America primarily relate to God at the end of the day out of fear, not primarily out of dad as your, or God as your dad. The imagery uh, here in, in Romans 3.15 is it's pretty simple. Uh, the imagery throws the Jewish people back to the Old Testament, uh, to the book of Exodus, where the people of God have been freed from Egypt and slavery. And they're running for their lives. And they are running 
and they're trying to get away, and then all of a sudden they probably see the plume of dust in the, in the distance, and they know that Pharaoh and his army are coming after them to crush them. And then they hit the Red Sea, and there's a million people, women, children, animals, men, with lots and lots of stuff, completely stuck. And here's what they know. They're going to die. They're going to die because their slave master, who they are petrified of, is hunting them down and trying to re-enslave them, if not kill them in that time. And then one of the, what I believe should be one of the most unforgettable moments in their entire life, um, when you watch the ocean, if you will, or any body of water part, uh, hopefully that is something you never forget. And the people of God go through, and as the Egyptians and Pharaoh come through the waters, the Lord releases them on the people, and then many, many, many of their slave masters died right before their eyes. And in this moment, God shows up, saves them from their slave masters, and ushers them and offers them freedom. Why would God do this? Because these people are deeply personal to him. I mean, yes, can you know God personally? I want to take it a step further and say, yes, and you can be in a relationship with God where you are deeply personal to him. I want you to imagine now you have an organization. And the CEO of the organization is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. What kind of values, actions, behaviors would you expect the organization to start to emulate, right? Now, let's be, let's be honest. There's a whole bunch of people. We call Village Church our home. We all have the spirit of God. Well, most of us, not all do, but I'm sure most of us do. Benefit of the doubt, we all do. Um, and would you say that we reflect as a community um, the reality that the spirit of God indwells all of us perfectly? Please say no. No, not at all. But do you expect that with maybe every new year, the people who are here are, are being more formed and transformed into the image of God? Absolutely, absolutely. And you expect the organizational character to move over time in a direction. Now you have a human, you have a person, you, me, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ. And you are filled with the Spirit of God. Do you think that the Spirit of God is going to lead you into the spirit of slavery that is run by fear? And the answer is no. He's moving you away from fear. If you were to talk to most Christians, what's their biggest struggle? Fear. That masquerades as insecurity. It masquerades itself as anxiety. But you get down to it, and there's this constant re-enslavement. And a good dad is like, no, I got this. Like, when we have tornadoes around here, uh, not often, but every once in a while, you know, the kids go to the basement. And my kids will always look at me and say, dad, are you scared? And I'm like, I'm not scared at all. Statistically, the chances of us are getting, you know. <laughs> But I, I love showing them the confidence of not having fear because what I want for my children in my presence is not increased anxiety, right? But it is calm and it is peace because that's what I want them to know when they're in the presence of God. So my daughter comes down and she has a, a, a very, very bad nightmare and everybody apparently in our family died and drowned. And that's a, for an eight-year-old, that, that's a terrible nightmare to have. 
And, and so she comes and she just tells me this. And, and I love that she comes to me. She verbalizes it. She says it to me. She leans her head into my chest. And in this moment, I am dispelling fear because my sheer presence is one that pushes away fear. It doesn't say, well, one day it's all going to happen. And I hope we don't all burn alive at a stake. And, and one day persecution is going to come. And, right? I'm not trying to create more anxiety in the girl. I'm trying to bring her down. And this is what the presence of God does. Here's the way I say this. Can I know God personally? You cannot just know him personally personally and be personal to know him, you can know him more intimately than a a daughter can know her good, kind, healthy dad. Like whatever awesome experience you've had with, with a spiritual leader in your life, whether it's a dad, a mom, or somebody who's poured their life into you, what God offers to you is actually way more beautiful and way more intimate than that. So Paul's mindset is that everyone's being led by one of two things, the spirit of slavery, which leads to fear, or the spirit of adoption. Look at the second half of verse 15. Here's what he says, but you, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, look at, look at two things the Holy Spirit's doing here. Look at two things. Number one, here's what, here's what he's telling us. Uh, he's reminding us of the gospel. You're like, okay, Michael, where do you even see the gospel here at all? Uh, adoption is a legal declaration of a permanent status, a new name, a new destiny, a new future, a new identity, a new mom and dad. It is a legal declaration made over your life. And the Holy Spirit is going to come to you and he's going to remind you, not just can I know God personally, but you are personal to God. And there's actually nothing that you can do to undo this adoption. This is the most permanent thing in your life, period, period. Verse 16, he says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And here's the idea. I think most of you at some point in your life can relate to this. The idea is that our spirit is saying, I'm not a child. I've sinned too much. God couldn't love me. God couldn't forgive me. And the Holy Spirit of God is like, uh, no, you didn't. And then the Holy Spirit goes to court in our heart. And the idea here is that there is a court and that, that the Holy Spirit is testifying and he's testifying and declaring before the judge to our heart, you are a son of God. All the lies that you conjure up in your brain that are based in fear and behavior modification and lack of performance, uh, I'm just gonna put those to rest. You're right. You don't behave like the best son in the world. You're right. You don't behave like the best child. You're right. You've got a lot of issues. You're right. You do love to run back to fear and slavery. And I think that's stupid. But despite the choices you make, this is the most permanent part of your life. You're a son. You're a daughter. It is legal. It is permanent. And you can't undo it. And so the Holy Spirit actually testifies to us regularly because our own spirits are so inclined to forget this and treat God as primarily transcendent rather than primarily as our dad. Number two, the Holy Spirit is drawing you to the Father to cry out to him as a, I love this picture, like a four-year-old little boy, right? When they get hurt, like, dad, dad, like this intuitive, guttural, instinctive cry. This is like one of the things that the Holy Spirit musters up inside of the child of God. Uh, sometimes when you're at your worst, you don't even know why, but you cry out to God. And, and maybe in former years, you would have shaken your fist at God and said, if you loved me, you would have. But then something inside of you actually changes and you find yourself like a little child crying, crying out to God. The word cry here, it's actually a, a it seems to be like a deep guttural cry. Like this is a, a cry of agony, if you will. It's a cry of pleading. 
And then you get this word. I hope most of you know it if you don't, but it's an Aramaic word. And, and um, I think when we pray to God, you know, we pray um, to the Father in the name of Jesus. And, and I think largely because of some residue of, I would just say, hyper-formalized religion over the last 1,500 years in the world, uh, especially in Christendom, we're like, oh, Father, oh, Father. And it's so religious and formal. I just, my kids are not allowed to call me Father. Uh, you want to... You want to get in trouble and go on a timeout and clean the whole basement and the rest of the house, right? Call me father. No, I'm dad, right? Because father is a cold, stoic word in our vocabulary. Oh, father. Like, I don't want to be father. I want to be daddy. I want to be dad. Like, that's what I want, right? And and listen to what Jesus calls the father. He calls him Abba. And Paul just takes this and says, Jesus modeled for us as sons, as daughters, how to relate to God primarily. Now, did Jesus ever forget the transcendence of God? No. But the primary way he interacts with God is as dad and not as transcendent father. This, this brings me to, uh, I want to share something with you that many years ago I actually taught at Village Church and share with you again. It's five broken ways that people relate to God. And so uh, I want to tell you what I did. Uh, I'll tell you what the five ways are. And with each of them, I asked my kids I want you to imagine God is like this. How, how would it change the way you interact with God? And so here's the first one. God is like a genie or Santa Claus. So I asked my kids, if God were like a genie or Santa Claus, how would you relate to him differently? And they said, I would ask him for stuff all the time. <laughs> Which is honest, right? Like, okay, if you had a genie, would you not use your three wishes to get all the money in the world, right? Or something, I don't know. Some of you are like, no, that's ridiculous. All right, fine. Um, would you not? I mean, what would you do? Think about it. You have three wishes. Oh, sorry, one wishes. I would like to have unending, never-ending wishes for the rest of my life. That is true. There we go. All right. Just process that out loud. What kind of stuff, I asked? Toys. And so prosperity believers, this is how they primarily see God. Now, does God love to give good gifts? The answer is Yes, but is this the primary way we identify and relate to him? No. God, number two, is like a grumpy grandpa. <laughs> the problem is I want to say, how many of you had a grumpy grandpa? The problem is he might be in the room, and I don't want to, I don't want to indict him. Uh, so I asked them, how would you relate to God differently if he were a grumpy grandpa? And they said, I'd be afraid of him, I would avoid him, and I would try really, really hard to make him happy. Which, by the way, is how fundamentalists see God. Rules, 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 rules. God's grumpy, you know. Oh, I gotta make him happy, you know. Uh, like an absent father. So I explain this to my kids. Um, if um, what if I just didn't care about a lot about what you did? I was out of town six days a week. When I did come home, I didn't really care about anything. How would you relate to me then? And then my oldest said, "I'd try to get away with a lot." Uh, my next, my middle said, I wouldn't worry about obeying a whole lot. And by the way, this is how many ex-Christians um, view God. Um, people who have kind of left Christianity, they may even still have like a God concept or a Christianity concept, but they're by and large not associating. And, and they just believe that God's not really interested they could get away with a lot. The, the fourth one is like a pool lifeguard. Um, you forget about him, let's be honest. Sometimes, like, you, you look and you're like, is he even there? I don't see anybody, right? But when you need him, aren't you really glad he's there? So I, I asked my kids, okay, if that's how he was like, what would you, how would you relate to him differently? 
And they said uh, would not be that important and wouldn't even spend a lot of time thinking about him unless I really needed him. And this is, by the way, how cultural Christians see God. He's like a pool lifeguard. Uh, Number five, like an overachieving coach, (laughs) works-based, performance-driven, drive, 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 better, 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 better. And I asked my kids, how would you... How would you relate to God if he were like that? And they said, quote, I wouldn't like him very much. I'd probably mess up a lot. I bet he yells a lot. By the way, this is how many of the Jews uh, seem to believe God was like in the first century. How you view God determines everything. So A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I have my own version of it, and it goes like this. The most important thought you think is the thought you think when you think thoughts about God. Try saying that 20 times. I worked on that for a while, just so you know. Practiced it this morning. The most important thought you think is the thought you think when you think thoughts about God. Because the thoughts you think about God determine how you view everything. It determines how you view reality. It determines how you view authority. It determines how you pray. The most important thought you think is the thought you think when you think thoughts about God. Like, that's good. Come on, people. I've said that four times in a row, and I didn't miss one time. Thank you. Thank you. There's just a better way to view God. And the scriptures tell us you view God as your heavenly dad, who is healthy and loves you, who pursues you and leads you, who has a vision for your life, who leads you to be more like Christ, who leads you away from sin and into beautiful life-giving things. Like this, this is, I'm sorry, can I know God personally? Yeah. And you are personal to God. So what? Uh, my encouragement to any Christian, and this is counter all of the hyper-formalized religions some of you grew up with, I get it, but I can't find any other avenue to have a primary way to relate to God. And it would just simply be this, the primary, not exclusive, but the primary way we relate to God is as a good and healthy dad. Um, Some of you will say, well, the Bible, the Old Testament says to fear God. Absolutely. Um, Let me me just tell you about my family, and I think we can make sense of this very simply without losing our minds. Um, My children primarily relate to me as a good dad who loves them. Don't cross me, though. They are afraid to cross me. Why? Because more than the peace of our home, I love their formation. I want their character more than I want temporary happiness. And I will make you clean the whole basement by yourself. That, by the way, they destroyed, (laughs) right? Uh, And so here's the deal. Like, they fear me, but that is not the primary way they relate to me, right? When my son uses his fist or hand or any part of his body to inflict any kind of harm on his sisters, he will fear me. But that is not the primary way he relates to me, is it? And so the fear is necessary and good. It's that transcendence. It's that power. It's that bigness. And it's always there. But if it's primary, you're in a spirit of slavery. And it's not primary with God. It's good and it's real and it's true, right? But it's not primary. Number two, you can know God personally as your heavenly dad only through faith in Jesus. Did you know God is called Father 15 times in the Old Testament, but never in the Old Testament, never, never once addressed as Father in prayer? 
God is called Father 65 times alone in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the Gospel of John, God is called Father over 100 times. Paul and the New Testament are, I mean, it is, if you just start reading with the perspective of family, it is on almost every page of every chapter, sons, inheritance, heirs, family, brothers, sisters, this intimacy. It is just all over the pages of the New Testament. And I think the discerning reader of the Bible should be able to take note and observe the following. Something changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So think about the Jews' main God concept. Uh, Thunder and lightning on the mountain. Dwelling in unapproachable light. Dying if you get too close to the Holy of Holies where God's presence is. Guarding, as Ecclesiastes would say, your every single word in prayer lest you overspeak. Like, that is, that, these concepts have developed a hugely big transcendent idea of who God is. But something massively shifted from the Old Testament to the New Testament, not in who God is. I want to be very clear. There is no difference. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But something massive changed in the way that the people of God primarily relate to him. And I want to just tell you what that simple change was. Jesus Christ who ushered in a new covenant, a new relationship, a new dynamic, that now with the death and resurrection of Jesus, he now gives his Holy Spirit to everyone who is a follower of God. Before, there was a veil that was over the temple, and you couldn't go through the veil unless you followed multiple rituals and protocols, and you had to be the chief priest one day of the year, and it was petrifying. You thought you were going to die, and they tie a rope around your ankle, and if you died, they just pull your dead corpse out, Right? And then with Jesus Christ, the veil of the temple, at his death, it is ripped from top to bottom. It's unbelievable. Now, the imagery here is that we have full access to the Holy of Holies, to God. Something happened with Jesus that fundamentally changed the way that we primarily relate to God. And even Jesus himself in his earthly ministry is showing this to us. God is my Abba. He is my dad. This is not just a stoic, distant relationship, although the transcendence is real and it's clear. Now, those of you coming out of maybe Roman Catholic backgrounds, you are taught primarily to interact and interface with God as primarily transcendent, primarily primarily rules-based. And the New Testament actually ushers in a very different dynamic in terms of how we primarily relate to God. So here's what we, we're going we're gonna to do. We're going to close this sermon by celebrating communion. And what communion tells us is that the blood and the shed blood and the death and the resurrection of Jesus fundamentally changed how we as humans relate to God. And so here's what happens. The Old Testament actually looked forward. It was, it was anticipating what was called the new covenant, a new promise. Most people don't know that. Like if you're a Jew and you're reading your Old Testament, it was looking forward to a time when the Spirit of God would dwell in the people. It was looking forward to a time when the Old Covenant with its laws and its regulations would go away and there would be a new covenant, a new way where the people of God would interact with God himself. And that the Spirit of God, that God himself would no longer be distant and in temples but would be dwelling in the people. And what Jesus Christ did is he came to bring in, to usher in this new covenant, this new way. And so here's what happens. Anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ, 
the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their God and Savior, here's the promise. You're given the new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit. Unlike any Old Testament believer before Jesus, you're given the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God is God himself in you. You are adopted as sons and daughters into his family, heir of everything that is God's, and you cannot just know God personally, but you are personal to God. So give me that any day. So when we celebrate communion, here's what we're doing. We're looking at the most cataclysmic, like earth-shattering shift in human history on a spiritual level where God is no longer dwelling in temples, but in people, the new temple. That's awesome. And then the the average American is going to say this. Well, how good do I have to be? How How much church do I have to go to? Do I need to go to confession? How many prayers do I need to pray? And this is the beautiful part of the new promise, the new covenant that is ushered in by Jesus. You will never be good enough. He was good for you. You will never go to church enough or give enough money away to like somehow cleanse your sins. It's never going to happen. But Jesus' shed blood is sufficient to forgive you of your sins. And so we, we get to offer this beautiful gift to humanity to say this. God is offering you the opportunity to not just know him personally, but to be personally known by him. God is offering you forgiveness of sins, salvation, family, a future. God is offering to put his Holy Spirit in you and to lead you into a much more beautiful future, to use you, to transform you, to bring you to life. And it's not by works. I, I, I grew up wondering... I grew up in, in two different Christian traditions, and one tradition was teaching me that salvation is for good people. Literally, that was the mantra, like, you've got to be good. And then the other tradition was salvation is not for good people. No one's good enough. And, and early on growing up, these two traditions would constantly compete in my brain. And uh, my mom gave me one of the greatest gifts. She opened up to me Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and she showed it to me. And she, it says really simply that salvation is by grace, which means it's a gift, It's free, and it's not by works, so that nobody could boast, and nobody could say, look what I did, and I got it. And it was one of the greatest gifts that God ever gave to me, that salvation is a free gift for anybody who trusts in Christ. So we're at the end of seven weeks of Explore God. Some people listen online, some of you have been here, some people have been watching on Facebook, and and so here's my ask to you. Um, What do you need before you're able to fully trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? What do you need? What stands between you and trusting in Jesus Christ? And, and my, sincere, my sincere hope um, is that whatever you need, whatever stands between you and trusting in Christ, that you will know that it's this church or your friends and family, we will do anything we can to come alongside of you to help answer your questions, to help you continue to explore God. And some of you, even today, you're like, you know you believe and you know that you want to trust in Christ. And what's standing between you and trusting in Christ is this weird pride thing that comes up. Every Christian you'll ever meet had to overcome that experience at one time or another. And so we stand here with you as a bunch of people who had to swallow our pride and say, I was wrong about Jesus. Now I know he's God. I was wrong about how good I am. I am actually a sinner who needs forgiveness. I was wrong about salvation is not for good people. I read the Bible and God declared to me that salvation is for anybody who trusts in Jesus. So in communion, here's what we do. It's very simple. 
Um, if you're new with us and you are a believer in Jesus, I want to invite you, would you partake with us? Uh, it's for anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ. Um, some of you are here and uh, you uh, have not yet trusted in Jesus. And so here's our ask of you when the, when the elements come by. Our ask is really simple. <clears throat> would you not partake? We don't say that to make you feel weird. We say that because <clears throat> when you partake of the elements, the Bible tells us we're making a personal declaration of faith in Jesus. And if you're not ready to make that faith declaration, uh, we just fully, we fully understand. We're just really glad that you are, you're here. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to have just a, a, a time of silence to talk to God, to listen, to pray, to thank him. My encouragement to you would be, maybe if you've only ever seen him as transcendent, Talk to him like maybe you would talk to a good, healthy dad. It's a beautiful way of approaching God in prayer. And then what we're going to do after that is I'll pray, and the band is going to sing and lead us in worship. And uh, will you, if you do me a favor, would you hold on to the elements until the end of the song? At the end of the song, I'm going to come up, and we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have a, a time of silence together. <clears throat>